welcome to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea. In this episode, I'm joined again by author, speaker, podcaster, and coach, Darina Lazo Gilmore Young. Darina is passionate about helping women discover God's glory on life's unexpected paths and flourish in their God given callings. But Darina is also a woman who knows grief intimately. Her story includes chapters of pain and heartache that no one would write for themselves. In our conversation, Jarena shares her story of losing her husband to melanoma and suddenly finding herself as a widow raising three young daughters. Jarena shares openly about her grief journey, holding on to her faith, and finding hope and joy in the midst of the hardest life chapters. She also shares about how God authored an unexpected chapter to her family's story and brought beauty to the brokenness. back and joining me today after the last episode. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm excited to be able to share a little bit more of my story and maybe not be quite so raw as I was last time. I mean, (laughs) I, I I welcome, I welcome rawness. So, and vulnerability, and I appreciate that. And I know when we talked last, I just sensed that with you. I emailed, I emailed you after I was just like, Oh, I just, I feel the grief and the heaviness. And I don't know, felt a little bit of a kindred spirit, not for the same reasons as you were sharing, but just could feel, could feel it all. Yeah. Well, I have learned through lots of speaking and interviewing in the last seven years that when God allows me to be raw and vulnerable, that it's often an invitation for others to feel that too. So mm-hmm. not to be ashamed of it or embarrassed and just to step into it. So, yeah. And when, I mean, I guess I didn't officially welcome you to the podcast, but I think, I think we've already kind of dove in. So are we, are we good just to keep going and get started? Are you good with that? Okay. Okay. Um, But yeah, what you just said, and then I didn't know a lot of your story when we spoke last. And after the episode, I just dug in more and I just felt felt the grief, but also just saw how much God redeemed your story, your family. And that's what I wanted you to be able to share today with my audience, because I know you're going to speak to a lot of people of you as you already have. So before we talk about that, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Welcome back, Darina. (laughs) Thank you so much, Andrea. Before we dive into your story deep, a little bit deeper, would you just share a little bit about yourself, your day to day? I know you did this on the last episode for for people that maybe didn't catch that one. For sure. Yeah. I am a writer and author and a speaker. I have a podcast called Walk, Run, Soar, uh, a book that just came out by the same name, Walk, Run, Soar, a devotional that was released last fall. And I am a mom to three girls. They are ages. Oh my goodness. Nine, 12 and 14. And in this season of life, when I drop them off at school, I do full-time work at home. And my husband is also working from home. He's in financial investments. I'm from a multiracial family and that's very much a part of my identity as I also am grounded in my identity in Christ. Yes. And I am a mama of girls too. I have a 12 year old also, but I've only got two. Mine are a bigger spread. They're 12 and 18. So you live in California. Is that where you were born and raised? Actually, I was born in California and then we moved out to Chicago when I was two. So I was really raised in Chicago. I went to college in Michigan and then back out here to California where I've spent the last 20 some years. (laughs) Okay. It's gorgeous out there. We went on one last family trip 
of the summer before COVID and we did like Yosemite, just all of that. And oh my gosh, it's beautiful there. Oh, um, I love it. Yes, I can only only imagine. And we will dive in talking later about your book because I did buy a copy of it and I'm loving it for the spring and kind of jumpstarting some things. So we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode. But before we do, let's just start with your childhood, if you don't mind, just sharing as much or little as you want. But I know being raised in a multi-ethnic home had to impact who you are. So just, just start where you want to with your childhood, your parents, and a little bit of your upbringing. Thank you. Yes. Um, so as I mentioned, I grew up in Chicago in the south side of the city. And my parents um, come together from different worlds, from different cultures. My mom's side of the family is predominantly Italian, but we recently did ancestry.com and found out she's got some Jewish roots and some Armenian roots as well. And my dad's side is primarily Filipino, but also Chinese, Polynesian, a little bit of Eastern Indian and African as well. So I was raised in a home where being multi-ethnic was considered something valuable. I like to say that being multicultural is my superpower because that is very much the way that my mom educated us. Um, She was a teacher and she taught cultures of the world as part of her curriculum for fourth graders. And so I really was raised to value that we had such a rich heritage. I was raised to talk about it and to enjoy the different foods from different countries. And my mom was a dance teacher as well. So we learned dances and music was always a part of our home. So it was really a positive thing for me growing up. And I went to a small private school in Chicago where my mom taught. And there was a lot of diversity in that school as well a lot of cultural diversity and also religious diversity. So that was very much a part of just shaping my worldview as a young person, being a part of those different contexts. And it really wasn't until I went to college that I felt more strongly or the weight of being a minority and being a person of color. Um, so those are just a couple things and, you know, feel yeah, free I mean, if you want to unpack more. Well, it's really interesting just because I've obviously had other guests on that are from multi multi-ethnic, multiracial backgrounds. And I hear different things, but it seems like the common denominator is you have been raised, you were raised to like embrace that. And you were raised not just about around whiteness, whereas the opposite, if you were raised to be ashamed or only around whiteness, it seems like it becomes a real struggle in your childhood. Um, I read that you said, my parents helped me see I could bridge across cultural lines. So it sounds like they just, they noticed it and they really, they made an effort to do that. Do you find that you do the same in your own parenting? Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, one of the high values for both sides of our family from different cultures is hospitality. And Mm -hmm. I really saw that exemplified through my grandparents on both sides and through my parents. They really just had a way of making people feel like family and coming into our home for different meals. And so I think that's something that definitely is my heartbeat. It's one of my spiritual gifts and I love to gather people. And so my, my daughters too are similar in that way. Um, we actually spent some time in the country of Haiti. My late husband and I started a ministry and a nonprofit there. So we also raised our girls living cross 
culturally. Okay. And so that shapes part of who they are as well. And when you got to college, you started that awareness of like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not quite fitting in. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I think all of those things start to just increase our awareness and shape more of our passion. For sure. Yeah. I went to a college that um, really courted me for being multicultural mm-hmm. and I got a multicultural scholarship and I'm super grateful for that. And I had a wonderful college experience, but I also discovered on the first day of school that I was very much in a minority. Mm-hmm. There were maybe 96% white, I think at the time on the, that college campus, um, that was very rooted in a specific cultural identity that I didn't realize I was stepping into. And so I really had to reckon with my identity at that point. And it was not necessarily that I experienced, you know, any kind of racism or othering, but just to recognize that, wow, I'm the only Brown girl, you know, in most of these classes and people remember me on campus because I'm short and I have dark, you know, big curly hair and I look different Mm -hmm. and, One of the things that I got to do in college, which was something that I treasure is that I got to be part of something called the mosaic community and ended up being the director of that community. And it was bringing together people from different cultural backgrounds, a lot of the minority students on campus, as well as the international students Mm -hmm. and missionary kids. And it was a community where you had to choose to live, um, but because we had intentionally chosen to live together and learn together. That was a place where I really um, wrestled with some of those questions, learned a lot about sociology and psychology and anthropology and kind of learning to incorporate that in a deeper way in who I was. And I also was the newspaper editor. So I was very much in a sort of public position. Mm -hmm. I was weekly writing editorials and managing a staff. So, you know, one of our functions as the student newspaper was to really challenge some things on campus that we wanted to see as change. And I had a lot of opportunity to write about diversity and about multiculturalism and even some of the things that were happening during that time that yeah. were current events. We see that now, how, how God's continued to use you in that path of writing and sharing. So if you don't mind, share just a little bit. I'm curious about like your faith journey, like as far, cause I know obviously your faith is a huge part of who you are right now and how God has totally redeemed your story. And you tell other people about that for encouragement, but I'm curious, like early on your childhood, were you, were you raised in a quote, Christian home? Were you exposed? You said you were exposed to a lots of different faiths and religions. So just share a little bit about that if you don't mind. Yeah, I was definitely raised in a Christian home. We went to a small church in the South side of Chicago. And so I became a Christian at a young age. I professed that faith and grew in that. And so I believe that my faith has been strong through the years, not to say that I've never struggled, but just that God has really ushered me through a lot of hard seasons. And I think it was a unique experience because I went to a school where people were from a lot of different backgrounds and religions, because I often had to articulate and defend my faith. Mm -hmm. I remember I was a sophomore in high school and we had an amazing humanities teacher and one of our assignments was actually to read the book of Job in the Bible. And it was very interesting because, you know, my classmates, my dear friends were 
one Hindu, one atheist, another who was Christian, one who was Jewish, uh, several, a couple that were Muslim. I mean, we were coming from really different vantage points, but we were circling up around different literature. And I remember my teacher turning to me and saying, you know, Darina, I know that you're a Christian and we're reading this book out of of the Bible. You know, can you explain the Trinity to us? (laughs) And I was like, uh, (laughs) here we go, you know, sophomore in high school. And I knew what I believed, but just being, you know, challenged and pushed to really articulate some of my theology from a young age. um, It it was good. It was good. And it really has shaped me even as an adult. Let's fast forward a little bit just for the sake of time. And I hate to just glimpse, glimpse over people's stories, but let's move forward to Haiti because I know that you have a passion and you did have a passion for serving. And like you said, you live there, but that's also where you, is that where you met your first husband? Yes, actually, um, we both are from central California, but we met on this mission trip. He was actually okay. a leader in our church of okay. the young adult group. And so he took a, a small group of us to Haiti. Um, we were doing a track and field camp there for okay. kids and Eric Lee's grandparents actually were pioneers near missionaries in the Northern mountains of Haiti. So he had this family heritage. He had always gone to Haiti in the summers growing up. And he had this vision to bring his passion for running to the kids of Haiti. So that's kind of how I met him, became great friends with him and and all the rest of the people who were on that trip. And then after that, we ended up getting married maybe a year and a half later. Okay. So what year was that that you got married then? I'm just thinking of your timeline of... Yeah. We met in 2001 and got married in 2003. You were married for... And I know it was like not just an easy breezy marriage. I mean, you had the normal marriage ups and downs, had three daughters in that time. But then fast forward again, because I think this is what a lot of the story we're going to focus on today, what God brought you through was when your husband, your first husband was diagnosed with melanoma. So do you want to share? And if there's things you want to share before that, I don't know a lot of your story before that. So if you think there's important things to talk about before that point, feel free to. Yeah. Well, I will just to give some context, say that after Eric Lee and I got married, um, we did get more involved in the ministry in Haiti. And after the earthquake happened, that was an event in Haiti and in history that really put the world's eyes and focus on the country of Haiti and the needs there. And so we started our nonprofit organization not too long after that, because there were so many people that were interested in investing and helping in Haiti. And we already had this natural connection with locals and a a longstanding ministry. So he and I then, you know, our entire marriage was traveling back and forth. It was building relationships with leaders in Haiti, as well as people here in California who were our partners. And that all kind of came to a screeching halt in 2014 when we received this diagnosis. My husband was a healthy triathlete runner, CrossFit guy. He was very passionate about nutrition and health. And so it was very devastating to receive this diagnosis. And He actually was diagnosed in May of that year at stage four melanoma cancer, which is stage five. (laughs) Yeah. I just literally, ah, I, it, that just hit so heavy because I remember getting the news last January when they called me and said that I had melanoma. Mm. 
And it's just like, it knocks you off your feet. I mean, any kind of cancer does. I think um, for me, the melanoma, same thing. Cause I'm like, I'm healthy. This was so just out of nowhere. No, not suspecting it at all. So for your husband, I'd love to know because we have a little bit of a passion for people recognizing getting their skin tests. Did he have like, do you mind sharing with us? Did he have an unusual mole or like what led up to the diagnosis? Yeah, I can share a little bit of that. Um, He actually had a mole removed two years prior to that, um, that was cancerous and without getting too much into the weeds of it, it was misdiagnosed and he was sent to the wrong type of specialist. And so I actually had to go through a court case and a pretty long thing afterwards connected with that. But I, I am also like you really passionate about people paying attention to their health, to getting those skin checks and all of those things, because we didn't have that education. And because of him being misdiagnosed, it really did cost cost him his life. And I've come to a lot of peace and redemption in my life because of that. But it's one of the reasons why I stepped into the legal side of it is because I wanted other people to hear our story. Uh, And honestly, I wanted to see some change in the protocols and that's where things kind of broke down. Yeah. And second opinions. I mean, I'm all about that. I know with me that the first doctor I saw that did take it off dermatologist, but she wasn't going to, she didn't think it looked suspicious. And I just think, my God, what if she hadn't? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like your husband had a similar second opinions are okay. And so the mole that he had taken off to go back to this, the one that, what did it look really abnormal? I'm always just curious because I continue to have them removed. And I think people are just really unaware until it hits them, hits home with them. You know, honestly, he had a lot of moles all over his body. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it was not something that was alarming. And the way that his doctor treated it was like, oh, I got it. I took care of it right there in the office, which is not what he should have done. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, I want to just be careful about Mm -hmm. preserving some of the details of that because it was something legal, but you know, all of that to say that it is so important for us to pay attention to those types of things. And, you know, it was really scary. I, we received his diagnosis and I had no experience with anyone who had Mm -hmm. cancer. His mom actually had been through breast cancer, but that's a very different thing. And so suddenly as his wife and his Mm -hmm. caregiver, I was launched into all kinds of medical decisions that I never anticipated. You said there's stages and stage four is, is the worst stage. And that's the Horrible thing with melanoma is it spreads so quickly and it can get into lymph nodes in your bloodstream and spread to other places. So with stage four, it has done that. And um, when you catch it sooner, you can get it before all of that happens. So you get this news. I just can't even imagine, Darina, I just can't. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I just tear up thinking about picturing being a wife and having three daughters and that's your husband's news. So just... I don't know, walk me through like you're wrestling with God, your faith, like there, there was so much at that time. And I know, especially in this last year of so many losses and death that a lot of people have been walking through grief. 
Yeah. You know, I often, um, talk about it. Like I got this sucker punch in the gut, like totally Mm. blindsided. And, you know, both of us were obviously, and at that time, then we had to immediately pivot. We had to pull back from all of our Mm -hmm. ministry and work life. We canceled all our trips to Haiti that summer and our teams that were coming. And we really just had to completely change our life course. And I think there's so much secondary loss that happens when something like that comes into play. And I think for me, especially, um, you know, the, his diagnosis was the beginning of my grief journey and I didn't have the language for it then, but now I know that there's something called anticipatory grief. And so I started into this journey of anticipating possibly losing him at the same time, having a strong faith and believing that God could heal him at any moment. And I absolutely believe that until the day he died. And I do believe he was healed when he went to heaven. So my faith in that was strong. I also, you know, because of the public life that we lived as missionaries and nonprofit um, directors, we had many different churches and organizations and people around the world who were praying for us, who were part of our journey. So my grief was also public because we had hundreds of people who cared Mm -hmm. deeply for us and I needed to communicate with them. And, um, you know, quite frankly, they, they were loving and supporting us, but I also had to manage that aspect of the grief, which is always the case. Um, some oftentimes people, you know, deal with their grief in a more private level. Right. So that was some of what I had to navigate and, you know, he actually went to heaven three short months later. So that September he died. And, you know, Mm. for us, it felt excruciatingly long because those were day after day after days that I watched him suffer. But for the rest of our world and our people, you know, one summer is really fast. And so just dealing with the suddenness of that grief for everyone else. And yet for me, Um, you know, honestly, I prayed in those last weeks of his life for God to take him, which is a prayer with a lot of gravity for a wife to pray, but I don't want to see him suffer anymore. And I believe that God was going to take care of us. He surrounded us with an amazing community of people. And so I was able to even say that to Eric Lee, I was like, you know, it's okay because God is going to take care of the girls and me. I had absolutely no idea how he was going to do that, but I believed it. And I was able to verbalize that to him and in some ways release him in that way. Um, So, you know, that's what I describe as kind of the anticipatory grief. And then of course, when he died on September 9th, then I went through the actual grief journey or the continuation of it, which was the loss aspect. And I made a really hard decision to step out of our work in Haiti at that point. I just felt like the travel back and forth and even just the heaviness and the tension and all that that goes with operating an international nonprofit was too much. And I really needed to focus in on my girls and just making space for our grief. So Um, that was that secondary loss of friends and community and work and all the things that I had done for years and thought I would do forever and coming home here to central California and really kind of 
hunkering down and praying for whatever God might have for right, us next. Right. And I, I do want to acknowledge, I really appreciate you sharing this because this wasn't that terribly long. I mean, it's just like I shared with you, I lost my dad last year and it's like all those feelings still come up when you talk about it and talk about the memories. So um, I appreciate you doing this and going through that emotion that rises up in you again, because I do think it's helpful for other people to hear other people's journeys and just how they get through this, um, especially when you're a person of faith and I know it can mean sometimes wrestling with God or questioning God, do you felt like, did you feel at all? Like you did that? Like when he wasn't healed on this earth or just, I mean, I immediately think, God, why would you do that? They have this ministry in Haiti, they're doing good work. And I know that's not how God works, but um, I'm just curious your thoughts and feelings at the time and the wrestling that you may have had. Yeah, I think definitely in the months after he died, I did wrestle with the Lord. And it's kind of a strange thing because it was like, okay, well, I did pray at the end for God to take him and he took him. And then it was the reality of waking up every morning Mm -hmm. and like, I'm alone, I'm a widow, like that actually did happen. And so I really had to just reckon with, you know, what is the meaning of prayer. How does prayer work when we had all of these people around the world praying? And I really had to go down that journey of like, you know, I felt like for so many weeks that if God healed him, that we would be able to give him the glory, that this would be his glory story. And so for, for that time, then it was like, okay, well, what are you doing with that Lord? And partly because of our influence in the community and my husband was a teacher and a coach. So like even at his funeral, we had dozens of kids, like my kids were young, their friends were there, all of the people that he had coached through the years and taught at the local school. And I, And so my burden was like, what is this going to do to all these little kids faith to see this daddy who is gone? Like that was something that I really wrestled with the Lord about from this good Christian family. That's doing good thing. I mean, I just think that's, it's, we just can't get our minds around that. I mean, I think that's part of the prosperity gospel. I mean, I would feel exactly the same way. Absolutely. And I, you know, you mentioned it a couple of times and I just, I want to be clear about the theology there because I actually had a pastor who I loved and who was a mentor, a friend of mine who, who said something similar, who said, you know, I can't believe Eric Lee has cancer. And yeah. you know, when we first got the diagnosis, you know, he's such a good guy and you guys are missionaries and like all these things. And I went home and that did not sit well with my spirit because I realized, you know what, this is actually not my theology. This is not what I believe. I do not believe that because we are missionaries, because we're doing good in the world, because we have all these little tick marks next to things that, that sound, you know, spiritual, that we are somehow protected from challenge. And in fact, the scriptures tell us that we will encounter trials and in those trials, then God meets us and walks alongside us. And, you know, Jesus went to the cross to suffer. So he is our model, not that we should always have to suffer and that there's no, you know, abundance or good in our life, but that we have to be careful when we start talking about this theology that says, oh, if you do good things, then good things will always happen to you. And so that was another thing I had to reckon with because, 
you know, people were so shocked, especially because he was so healthy as well. And such an ambassador for nutrition and health, they were shocked that, that Eric Lee would get cancer. And it was something that I actually felt shame about in the beginning, because I thought, oh, well, this is like something we believed was biblical and we led this healthy lifestyle. And then it didn't turn out the way that I thought it would. Well, this is messing up everyone's theology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But in fact, I think the Lord was clarifying for me so that I could also articulate to others that as believers in the Bible and in scripture, that is actually not what it says. It says that we are going to suffer, that we're going to face trials. And that's the place, that sort of thin place between us and God that we get to cling to him and that we get to feel his presence in an even more powerful way. And I live that. That's right. And I really appreciate you talking about that. And I think I wanted you to dive into that a little bit because I know, I know I wrestled with that too, with my faith, because I had a huge chunk of skin taken out my lymph nodes and it hadn't spread to my lymph nodes, but I got a lot of reaction from my faith community and it was a good intentions, but it was just like, Oh, it was because you prayed and we were so faithful and we all pray. And I thought, really? Like, it's cause I'm a good Christian. Like, what does that say for the others? Or cause my faith was stronger. So it's, it's, Oh, there's a lot of wrestling and tension there on either side of it. And I think we have it so wrong of what, our expectations of God are when we check the boxes. Um, And like you said, wrestling with the role of prayer and faith. So I appreciate you talking just a little bit about that. So tell me how old were you and your daughters when, when God took him? I was 37 and then my youngest was age two. And then I had five-year-old and an eight-year-old. Oh, Darina. So you're a widow in your thirties with three young girls and you've got them to take care of. So I'd love to hear like, what, how did you maneuver that taking care of yourself and your daughters? Cause that is the burden that I'm just, Oh, I can't even imagine how that weighed on you as a mom that these three. And I saw your Easter picture where you're like these three girls, like it looks all the way you posted on Instagram, like this Easter picture looks all happy, but here, this is these three girls were daddy's girls and they lost their dad. Mm-hmm. So how did you navigate that as a mom? And how do you Uh, yes. You know, honestly, I think I stumbled through that because there's no like self-help book or design of how exactly to do that. I didn't feel like that was in my wheelhouse as a mom, but I navigated it through a lot of prayer and through some Mm -hmm. amazing community support. Um, my parents actually live here in central California. And so they were close by helping me all the time at amazing, um, what we call our life group. So group of families that surrounded us, they, they fed us. I mean, quite literally my community fed me for probably four Mm -hmm. months, bringing food and sending gift cards and all of that. And even bearing the burden of just some of my everyday things. I mean, I had friends who would come to my house and say, okay, you know, my friend who's like a fix it around the house guy. And he was like, give me your list. Like I want to fix everything in this house that you need help with. And, you know, another friend who would help with bringing my kids to school when I needed it. And just some of those really practical things. Um, so that really I could concentrate my heart on the grief aspect because Mm -hmm. mama is really the only one. I mean, not to say that others can't help, but mama is the main one who needed to be there for my girls. And I didn't want to be farming them out during that time. I wanted to hold them close. And 
that's where we learned that, you know what, tears are welcome at our table, that Mm -hmm. memories of daddy, like I wanted my girls to know their dad's legacy. I didn't want to just sweep that grief under the table. I wanted them to see me cry because I, that gave them permission to cry. And I'm, I'm really passionate about that now. And even part of um, my ministry that I do is, is reaching out to young widows through an online Facebook group called widow mama collective that I started to just encourage women that, you know, being a mama and a a young widow is hard. It's Mm. hard. And it also doesn't mean that we have to have everything together that we can actually walk through that grief with our children and I believe they will become more resilient and healthy if we allow them to go through that with us instead of kind of pushing it aside, which, you know, sometimes depending on our cultural background, but especially in American culture, right. grief is just for this short amount of time. And then, you know, let's put on our happy faces and let's try to just move on with life. And I have definitely moved forward with my life, but I have not moved on from mm-hmm. the fact that I was married and loved this man who went to heaven way too early. Right. And the father of your, your three beautiful girls. So I'm assuming that you still continue to talk about Eric Lee and memories. And it's not like you said, it's, it's a journey. It wasn't just like go through grief and it's done. Like it continues. So is that a part still of how you're healing? Absolutely. Yeah. It's been seven years and, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who must think, oh, well, seven years, you guys must be over it. You must've moved on with your life. And in many ways, God has redeemed things for us, but we make our grief and our remembering Eric Lee very much a part of our family Mm -hmm. and our household and our rhythm. And so just a couple examples. So he went to heaven on September 9th. I think I mentioned before. So we consider that his heaven anniversary. I just made up that word. <laughs> I saw your blog post about it and I'm going to link it up because I love it. Cause I know we dealt with that. My dad's first year heaven and like, what are we supposed to do? And you have some amazing ideas for that, but we'll put the link to that, but continue with what you were, what Perfect. you were going to share. Yeah. And I mean that for us has become a day really to remember him and sure there's sadness in it, but it's also celebration. And this is a little bit about how I'm wired, but also how I just want to live and move in the world that we celebrate his life. And so that day, historically, not in the COVID year, but (laughs) historically we would have a big party. And I mentioned hospitality is one of the things that I love. And so we have a big dinner party. We invite a lot of his friends, especially friends that we don't necessarily see all the time. And we have a time of storytelling. So Mm -hmm. we just, after dinner, we'll invite people to share memories, share stories. My kids, like probably most kids, they absolutely love hearing stories Mm -hmm. about their dad. And some of them are silly and crazy things he did when he was younger. And some of them are, you know, spoken through tears and trembling from his dear friends who miss him. Mm -hmm. But all of that for us is that celebration of his heaven anniversary. And because Mm -hmm. we have this confidence that he went to heaven, that he is with the Lord and we'll get to see him again one day, it doesn't have to be this somber day. It doesn't have to be this day of torture. I mean, we, we do take a trip to the cemetery as well Mm -hmm. with his mom, which is something that's really important to her. And Mm -hmm. we do have our tears, but 
I just, I do want that to be something that actually my kids look forward to because it's a day that we honor him. Um, and the second thing that we do is kind of a little bit funny and crazy, but on April 2nd, which is his birthday every year, we do a workout in his honor because he loved to work out and he was a CrossFit guy. And so incorporating whatever number, so he just would have turned 47, um, this month. So we did a 47 workout Mm -hmm. on April 2nd. We, a lot of us ran and hiked 4.7 miles and we did, you know, burpees and sit-ups and push-ups. And we just remember daddy and we just remember remember how much he loved to instigate and inspire people to be healthy and work out. And we just kind of talk about, he must be, you know, in heaven, teaching the angels how to do CrossFit Mm -hmm. or run around the track and just kind of use our imaginations in that way. So again, to honor him. Yeah. I love that. And it's, it's so hard. Like just even my own mom being a widow, it's like, it's really hard to figure out that balance between, between the joy and the grief. And I think we have to learn how to hold both of them. I know in reading your bio, you said that, um, God has given you a superpower of joy, mm-hmm. which that's not easy for people. A lot of times through grief, do you feel like you were able to hold on to that through your initial grief stages? Yeah. I think that's a big thing that I've learned and actually written about a lot is that Mm -hmm. it's not like you have just one day of joy and one day of grief. Like it's every moment and joy and grief are constantly dancing together. And for me, you know, even I remember the very first week after he went to heaven, um, a friend group of friends had invited us to go to a Christian concert and we were at this concert and my girls, they were worshiping and they were dancing. Mm -hmm. And I just remember sitting there like with so much joy in my heart and after the concert, then a friend of ours, kind of not super close, but somebody who was in our community came over to me and, and basically kind of like threw herself on me sobbing and so sorry for what had happened and like so genuine, but it was jolting to me. Cause I realized like I was in this moment of joy mm-hmm. and then she was coming with her grief and her pain. And I was trying to figure out like, is this awkward? I'm not crying. I'm not feeling sad right now. Like, should I be, you know, I started to second guess some of those things. And that was sort of the beginning of wrestling with that a bit, but the conclusion I've come to, and I stand by seven years later is that we absolutely are invited to both the table of joy and grief at the same Mm -hmm. time that, and that's actually what Jesus embodied, right? What his life and his death were all about. And, And so as scripture says, we carry his life and his death with us always. And I think, you know, sometimes people think, oh, only you can only grieve and, and maybe others are more in denial and only joy. But I think holding the two of those together is, um, is where we meet God. Yeah. Oh, I could, I could not agree with you more. And I think that is one of also the biggest lessons for me through the grief process. And that I think if so many that are in that, um, can learn that lesson or wrestle with it, that they can really figure out that that is, that is where Jesus is. That is what Jesus is. Let's move on a little bit to the next part of your story, because God rewrote the next chapter that I was like, wait, did I read that right? Okay. So, (laughs) (laughs) so tell us about 
that because you are remarried. So just tell us, yeah, tell us about that. I'm gonna let you take it from here. Well, this is the wild and crazy kind of redemption that God is in the business of doing. And I consider him the master author because no one would have imagined this one. But um, there's a man named Sean who was actually a dear friend of Eric Lee's. They grew up together. They went to youth group together. They both were track and field athletes. And I actually met Sean on that very first mission trip. Uh, Eric Lee had invited him to be part of that team. And I met both of them. So kind of funny to say, met both Uh of my husbands on that trip. Uh And (laughs) Sean was my prayer partner. And through the years, even, you know, he was part of our wedding. He gave a toast at our wedding. He was one of our dear friends. He was from Fresno, California, originally moved to Maryland. He worked in Maryland for nine years. And even during that time, whenever he would come home to visit, he would stay with us or he would, you know, come to our house for dinner. Our kids got to know him a little bit and definitely my family knew him well. And kind of just to fast forward through the story, Sean came out for Eric Lee's funeral. He shared scripture at the funeral and just was such an amazing support to me. Little did I know that God had some things in the works. Even then, um, Sean really grew a heart the year before my husband died. He grew a heart for widows and Mm. through just some amazing preaching at his local church in um, Maryland, he had just been praying about God. What do you want me to really do about this? And his mom was widowed pretty early on. His mom was in Southern California. And so he had already been feeling like it was time for him to move home, to be closer to his mom. She was having some health problems. So the very weekend that he was flying out for Eric Lee's funeral, he had been interviewing for jobs for almost a year and he had gotten a call from UCLA and they said, Hey, we'd love to interview you for this job. They were going to do it via Skype. And he was like, well, this is kind of weird, but I'm actually going to be going through LA for my friend's funeral. He got to do this live interview, went to the funeral, stayed with us Monday. He was flying home, got a call that he had gotten this job at UCLA. And so this had really nothing to do with me. This Mm -hmm. was God putting together these puzzle pieces that none of us would have imagined. So Long story short is Sean ended up moving back to California, you know, in just a few months and we cultivated our friendship just because he was a comfortable person in my life. I was not looking to date. I was not, you know, trying to get myself out there in any way, but he was someone who was really comfortable for me to talk to on the phone just listened, you know, and he, Mm. he also was grieving his friend and he ended up, um, he was living down in LA. So he wasn't local, but he would make the drive to Fresno, which is about a three, four hour drive. And, you know, little by little, we began to see that God was actually doing something really Mm -hmm. different in our relationship that we never expected. And I remember like we had talked on the the phone for weeks, but I remember the first time he came to my house to have dinner with my girls and how I felt that thing in inside of me, like, Whoa, this is different. And just that there was like an excitement and a, something different as I even looked at him, never had anything romantic between us before that. Um, so I like to call him my Boaz, just making a reference to the book of Ruth. And, you know, God was actually having me do a Bible study through the book of Ruth during that season. Mm. 
a book that I had taught many times and it was already dear to me, but obviously as a young widow, I began to see those scriptures and those promises in a really different way. And then as God unfolded our relationship, unanimously friends and mentors and family and people who we sought counsel from were like, we already knew this was coming. We were already praying for this. You know, I felt like it was almost a conspiracy against me because I would work up all this energy to share with someone that I was dating Sean. And then they would be like, oh, we already knew that yeah, was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so there's just a sweetness oh. to that, but also like an affirmation that, yeah. you know, even though this was scary, even though I was still grieving, God was laying out this plan step-by-step. And so we ended up getting married then, um, that following year, January of 2016. Okay. And we've been married for five years. So my girls consider Sean, their daddy. And, you know, even my youngest, Mm. she's been with him longer than she was with Eric Lee. So they have a daddy in heaven and a daddy on earth. Yeah. I, I, the theme for this season has been beauty in the broken and you're telling your story and I'm like, Oh, it's, it's right there. It's still really hard. And the brokenness from losing Eric Lee, but how God redeemed it and brought Sean into your family. And you share that you and your husband, your, your Eric Lee, your first husband had even been praying for somebody for, for Sean. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of funny. I mean, Eric Lee literally would pray for him almost every day. He was definitely a man of prayer and he loved his friend Sean so much. And so I remember I can hear his prayers in my mind that he would just pray for Sean's future wife. And so Mm -hmm. that was just the sweetness and the irony, you know, even standing at the altar together, we, Sean and I reflected on that. We, we just felt his presence because he had been yeah. such a part of our relationship. And right. I mean, he still is a part of our marriage, which may sound strange, but it's no, but you have that connection. I mean, connection. yes. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful and hard and all of that. And I just, I thank you for sharing that. And I think that just can give hope to so many, not that maybe you're in exact widow situation, but just like how, what is God going to do in this mess? Like he just, he surprises us and shocks us and writes our stories in ways that we would never imagine. And yours is an example of that. Absolutely. I, and I want to encourage people because, you know, I tell my story and I don't mean to sound like every young widow needs to get remarried. That might not be the story God is writing for them, but I do believe that God is in the business of bringing beauty from ashes. I do believe Mm -hmm. that he is always working on our behalf and that we can trust him in that. And so I have so many different widow friends who have different stories that God is in the work of resurrecting their lives. There's so many different paths that you could be called to. I appreciate you saying that. And I do want to encourage folks to go, go to your blog. We'll obviously put the link to that because you do have so many resources for, and you share your experiences walking through this so much more detail um, and so much more beautifully that we could, than we can touch on today. But one of the things I want to just fast forward to a little bit um, that I'd love to talk a little bit more about is reading through your blog. You just talk about 2020 is the year that you realize real hard work of soaring is in the waiting. So I think so much of your story is about that waiting, you know, waiting for God to redeem your story, waiting when your husband was suffering. I mean, just so many parts of that. Would you talk just a little bit about that, the role that waiting has played in your life? 
Yeah, I I love this topic and I hate it at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Cuz who who likes to wait? <laughs> right. But I feel like that's sort of the crucible where God has taught me so much and mm-hmm. it's one of the the big reasons that I wrote my book Walk Run Soar because I feel like I wanted to explore this idea a little bit more of what it means to soar in our lives yeah. and particularly in Isaiah 40, where it talks about the eagle and the idea that the eagle is a bird that soars. So I did a little research on this as I was writing the intro for my book. And I discovered that the eagle is, and many people know it's this huge, beautiful, majestic bird. It has like almost a six feet wingspan, but the eagle is very interesting because the eagle is not a bird that spends a lot of time flapping its wings. The eagle actually, I discovered, spends a lot of time waiting and the eagle uses, um, it's called the wind thermal, but basically the wind and soars on the wind. So the eagle will sit and perch for days sometimes waiting for that just right wind before they will soar. And then they go to these really high heights because they take that wind higher. And I love that kind of metaphor and word picture for our spiritual lives as well, that Really, if we desire to soar, as it says in Isaiah 40, that we need to lean into the waiting. And I chose soar as my word for 2020, thinking I'm going to travel and I'm going to launch this book and I'm going to do all these things. Like I knew that God was opening some doors in this area, but my vision of soaring was the actual, you know, soaring on that wind. And I, I didn't realize that 2020 was going to be this, you know, what they call dumpster fire of a year where we were, (laughs) our planes were grounded and our plans were canceled. And so much of what we did in community had to be done online. And so he taught me in that space that really waiting is the place where we build our strength. And so when we wait on the Lord, when we trust him, when we look to him in that space of waiting, and I imagine there's a lot of people listening who are waiting for something right now. Maybe it's waiting for a baby or waiting for a diagnosis or waiting for, you know, that promotion at work, or even just waiting for healing for a child or a friend in that waiting. I think we so often grow impatient, but if we see it as the season where God is building our strength for that soaring, it just completely changes the landscape. Mm -hmm. So that's what, you know, not that I've done that perfectly, not that I ever am, you know, not doubting or having words with the Lord. (laughs) It's hard to practice, you know, but I, I believe that he wants us to live the lab on that one, that we actually wait on him. And that's what prepares us Mm. for that next season. And it's actually part of our flourishing. It's not that we only flourish when we're soaring, when we're waiting, when we're walking, when we're disciplining ourselves, when we're getting into his word, that's the place actually where we begin our flourishing process. Yeah. And what, what a powerful sermon and message for all of us coming out of 2020. And we're not even still ready just to soar. I mean, I think we thought, oh, 2021, now let's go fly, but we're still, we're still in that waiting. So sometimes that waiting takes us a little bit 
longer than we think too. Um, so just so powerful. So you mentioned your book. Let's talk a little bit about that because you actually are the author of several books. You have children's books, you have a couple of Bible studies and we'll link all of those up, but your most recent book is called walk run sore. And I bought a copy of it. It's a 52 week running devotional. I know running is a big part of your life and your story, but it's also for walkers because I am no longer a runner. So I still, I still bought it. I'm like, I don't think I am advice because it's, I don't run anymore, but it's not just for runners. So you want to talk just a little bit about it and we will definitely put a link to it. I think spring is the perfect time for, this is just perfect timing for people to get this book. Thank you. Yeah. So this book, it was such a fun project that kind of grew organically, not something that I set out to write as kind of my heart message, Mm -hmm. but I am a runner. And in a lot of ways, my grief therapy was running. I started trail running. I was a runner before that um, happened before my husband passed away, but I really got involved in trail running with some friends and just being out in the beautiful hills and lakes here in central California. And I feel like that's where God did a lot of healing. I did a lot of questioning and mm-hmm. crying and wrestling with him there too, but he also did a lot of just healing and caring for me in that space. And what I would often do is I use this little app called run keeper. So I'd go out for a run and it kind of tracks my stats and where I went and stuff. And then there's a notes part of it where I would just write down a a few notes, maybe a Bible verse that came to mind or something I saw on the trail, a kind of a reflection. And I didn't realize at the time that I was planting seeds to write a devotional. Mm -hmm. So I had several friends. I, I would often share them on Facebook And I had several friends who said, you need to write a book about this. And then my agent as well, she said, I just feel like you, I'm not a runner, but you get so much response and, you know, inspiration from your ones. What would happen if you wrote a book, like a devotional about this? So really, like you said, the book is not just for runners. You can be a runner at any pace, which includes walkers and joggers and sloggers and sprinters and (laughs) all the different paces. But the idea is that I'm telling stories from my runs of things that God taught me along the way. And so there is a thread of grief and, and how I navigated my grief. There's also just a thread of seeing God through creation and experiencing his glory, chasing after his glory as I get outside and just the the benefits of that. And the fun part is that Sean actually got to partner with me. Yes. So he writes some coaching tips. He is a professional coach and has lots of experience in marathons and triathlons. And he helped me gather some quotes and different things for the book. He was my first editor for the book. He's an amazing editor. So we got to do this together. It was really fun. Yeah. And it's a really cool book. I mean, it's so much more than a devotional because you have space and notes for the days of the week and the miles and the thoughts, and you have really practical information as well as biblical inspiration. I mean, it's really, I think it's, it's a, it's great. So I thank you for it. I'm so glad that our paths crossed so that I had this. Cause I thought also think it's a real encouragement. If you've maybe been out for the winter of not moving your body much to get out in the spring and, um, and maybe adjust to a little bit healthier lifestyle than 2020 allowed in some regards. So thank you for telling about it, for sharing it with us. Um, can you, we just have a few minutes left. So I want to make sure to be respectful of your time. I know you're also, God uses you so much to speak at women's events and retreats and to lead Bible studies. And now 2021, we're starting to be able to do a little bit more of that. So can you just share with us where, where we can find you, but also where, where you're speaking at coming up if people want to join. 
Yeah, I love teaching the Bible and and actually speaking for conferences and events. So a lot of it is happening online this year, but there's a few in-person events. Um, The one that's coming up is called Someday is Here. And I specifically want to invite listeners who are from Asian American heritage. It's a conference that actually started last year, right before the pandemic began. So we met in person this year, we're going to meet online, but it's put together by my friend Vivian Mabuni. And that event is specifically bringing together Asian American women and really to empower and gather them. Is it just for Asian American women? I just want to clarify you because know, I know actually, not all of the speakers are not all Asian American. Um, well, there's, so. I think eight or nine different tracks and one of our tracks okay. is on adoption. And so we, we invite anyone who would like to come and learn. Okay. And so okay. if you are not Asian American, but you would like to learn, or you're an ally, we absolutely would love for you to listen. Okay. And because it's an online conference, it is more open to right. people who would feel comfortable. Right. Okay. Perfect. And then you're also leading an online Bible study. Is that correct? You know what? Um, I'm part of something called online women's Bible study and Becky Kaiser is the leader of that. But every week a new Bible teacher teaches and our theme for this spring is called more than ordinary. So if you want to just Google online women's Bible study, or we can link it in the show notes. And if you don't have a local church or a Bible study you're involved in, again, this is a great online community where you can hear from some amazing teachers. Yeah. I went and looked at the link you sent me. There's quite a lineup of really awesome ladies that are, that are teaching. So people can find you there and learn more from you there. And then you have a website. Do you want to tell us what that is? And we'll of course link that up. So that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me and and some of these different things we've mentioned today, darinagilmore.com and it's Gilmore with one L. Okay. And we will put the link to that Darina. Thank you so much. I appreciate again. I know Some of this is hard to walk through, so I just appreciate you taking the time and emotional space to to do that with me and my listeners. Well, thank you. I appreciate all of your questions and, and my prayers are with you and your family as well. Thanks so much for listening in on our conversation. As always, you can find the links mentioned at the show notes at HerStorySpeaks.com. Be sure to check out Darina's website. It's packed with information, including her blog posts, her podcasts, and a list of her books with links on where to purchase them. 